Dutton tanks liberal vote, NDIS reboot, Father Bob passes, and good news about EVs. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison, and joining me on this quite sad day is the great, the glorious... The the very puffy-eyed... Best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. A book that Ben just positioned in front of a television camera behind me when I was on the drum. So if you haven't already bought it, what are you waiting for? Ben Batum! You're the best. You are the best. Thank you for being so kind to me today. I'm obviously devastated about the death of Father Bob Maguire. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think a large number of people right across the nation are... And, and we will talk about Father Bob. Uh, we will talk about Father Bob today a little bit. But first, Van, I want to change gears and, and put our audience in a positive frame of mind <laughs> because Peter Dutton, leader of the leftovers, has successfully tanked the Liberal Party vote. And when I say Liberal Party vote, I mean the coalition vote. Uh, recent uh, Resolve poll uh, published by the Channel 9-owned newspapers. You cannot imagine the size of the smile on Ben's face, can I just say? Well, it's it's a big smile because, let me tell you, it's a big tanking. It's a big tanking. The primary vote of the coalition, that is the Liberal Party, the National Party, the Liberal National Party, the Country Liberal Party, and I don't know, the whatever else Peter Dutton calls his party in the various pockets of the country. We are lost and sad and live in Western Australia. Is that the name of the party there? Well, they're not even really there, are they? <laughs> um, because their combined primary vote is at 28%. Plus a box of Smarties. So that's really... That's, that's not enough to win an election. No, it's... Anywhere. No, it's really not. You do it to yourself, you do. That's what really hurts. Because you do it to yourself. Yeah, anyway, we yeah. sing that once a week. Yeah, well, people sing Actually, like I it. sing it every day. We get some positive true. comments I can't about stand Radiohead, by the way. <sighs> I was once asked, can I brag, <sighs> I had dinner with Ed Balls, who's literally one of my favourite British Labour shadow chancellors ever, a wonderful neo-Keynesian man, and he asked me, he said, I just want to know, do you like Radiohead? And I said... Look, I'm not going to tell a lie. No. And he went, ELO for life. And that's when I knew I was on the right political path. ELO for life. Yeah. <sighs> you oh. look a bit like him, just saying. Well, there you go. That explains a lot. Um, so, look, Dutton's just gone off the deep end. I love it. I love it. But he got new glasses to make himself look more centrist. Like he'd eaten Harry Potter. Um <laughs> I, I just I just can't get over it. His negative approval rating is minus 28. Now, you go, oh, that's bad. It's even worse when you consider that a month ago it was minus 11. So he's managed to lose 17 points on approval. Uh, and, and, of course, this was all before yesterday's reshuffle of his cabinet. Well, the research was done before that. It was done after the Julian Lesser resignation but before the reshuffle. So, of course, there is some element of his very strong endorsement of the No campaign, or as I call it, the anti-voice campaign, because that's what it is. Yeah, it's the anti-voice. And he he has, since Julian Lesser, who was a highly qualified uh, uh, jurist, he was a uh, he was a former Harvard fellow. I was reading about this today. He's a former Harvard fellow. Uh, one of the Liberal Party's best minds, legal minds, resigned as Attorney General and Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. There's now been a reshuffle because Karen Andrews, who was Shadow Home Affairs Minister. Remember when we used to think Karen Andrews was the Antichrist? Remember when we would look at people like Karen Andrews and go, oh, my God, they're so right-wing. Karen Andrews, today, comparatively communist. Well, I mean, this is this is the bizarreness of it all, right? Karen Andrews clearly not up to the job of being Shadow Home Affairs Minister. Uh, mind you, James Patterson, 
a man whose beard looks like it was painted on by someone who closed their eyes and just threw brown paint at him, is now the Shadow Home Affairs Minister. Ben, are you beard shaming someone? Well, as a man with a beard, I feel qualified to make comments like that because I'm not a 15-year-old pretending to have one (laughs) who somehow or another miraculously got himself elected to Parliament. I mean, James Patterson... I'm just doing a lot of sighing. Yeah, he's an IPA loon. He's an IPA loon. He's an IPA loon. And And this is, I mean, I can't, everyone, I do, I do apologise if Ben and I seem a little disjointed on, on the podcast today. Obviously, I'm very, very sad about the loss of Father Bob and going through a lot of existential religious angst. But more than that, it is almost unfathomable to think you and I and all of these other people, all of these other commentators, not necessarily people from our corner of political alignment either, mm. have been going, what on earth is going on in the Liberal Party? They are hemorrhaging any claim to the Australian majority, which, by the way, you need to win an election in a democracy. Like Democracies are about majorities. Yeah. And they cannot form one. There is no electoral majority that exists within the realm of what they're advocating. You know, I did a politics course at Melbourne Uni a couple of years ago, which was great because it reminded me that I absolutely do not want to be a politician (laughs) in every single way. I was like, no, my interest, my interest is in the ideology. Therefore, politics has no place for me. But one of the really interesting things I learned in that course was that the electorate are always further to the other side than you. And this is an important lesson for left-wing people um, with Labor values, that to win elections, to have power so we can implement a left-wing agenda means convincing centre-right people to vote for that left-wing agenda. We can't convert them into left-wing people. It's that's not how it works. Yeah, we make an argument, we prosecute a program. You know, we we cost and prosecute the uh, the uh, a compromise that a majority will support. But the other side have to do that too. The electorate is always going to be more left wing than the Pretty Liberal up. Party, and at the moment, like I just it's what. I don't even, I can't. My brain, my brain, Ben, my brain is struggling to process the political strategy here. Well, let's go through some of the numbers here because don't forget, Peter Dutton has publicly said. I am a banana. No, no, but he he, might as well. There might be a few votes in the banana identification. He has publicly rejected the idea that they should be, quote, more like Labor, right? That's not what he's going to do. They need to be more like the Conservative Party of Menzies. And you and I have talked at length. Party of We've movies. talked at length about that. You can check that out in many of our former podcasts. In fact, you'll find that the day after the federal election, we were, I think, if not the first, certainly among the first people to go, this will be a crisis for the Liberal Party and their identity. And, and Australia is a Menzian hawk country, not a, a Dutton Latham country, right? So <laughs> thank God. And thank God for that. But I mean, you're absolutely right, Van, because Albanese's approval rating has jumped from 24 to to 27. Um, So what Labor is doing is is making that appeal work. The the Labor primary is at 42. I remember before the last federal election when the Labor primary was at 32, people were going, oh, you can't win on 32. Well, Labor did win on just over 32, almost 33% primary. At the moment, with a 42-point primary, we're talking about some incredibly formally safe seats, and Aston really should have been the wake-up call. What it seems to have done instead is encouraged Peter Dutton to just hook up a Sky News drip directly to his eyeball (laughs) and is now just regurgitating the talking points. So much so, so much so, that when Pauline Hanson tweeted that Jacinta Price should be made minister, shadow minister for Indigenous Australians. Most, most sensible people went, oh, well, that definitely means Peter Dutton won't do that because that would be doing what Pauline Hanson suggests. And of course, we all remember that Pauline Hanson was once considered so racist 
that she was thrown out of the Liberal Party. Not just thrown out of the Liberal Party, thrown out during a federal election when she was an endorsed candidate. So, so when you, they were trying to win. That was the Howard election in 1996. I genuinely can't believe it. So you would think that that would be, oh, and, and I certainly read it and went, oh, well, that's the end of Jacinta Price's aspirations. Maybe she'll get some out of shadow cabinet position as a, you know, we can still get Jacinta Price to go and stand alongside Peter Dutton while they make unfounded claims in remote communities that when challenged, they then attack the people who live in those communities. Maybe they'll still keep her doing that. No, 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 no. Peter Dutton, having been given his instruction by Pauline Hanson on Twitter to appoint Jacinta Price as shadow Indigenous Australians minister, did what, Van? Appointed Jacinta Price as Shadow Indigenous Australians Minister. I just always like reminding people that not only is Pauline Hanson racist and also ableist, released an extremely ableist video the other oh, day. shocking. I couldn't Absolutely even watch shocking. it. I just could not even go there. And I talked not, about it on the weekend. Not right? only is she Islamophobic, not only does she has have a history of homophobic and transphobic comments, I, I want everybody, and, you know, obviously sought money and support from the NRA in the United States. I always feel it's really important to acknowledge that Pauline Hanson is also anti-Semitic and that that was certainly, you know, political character of her back in the day in the 90s, which was why I had the great honour as president of NUS of running a joint campaign with the Australian Union of Jewish Students against the kind of toxic one-nation behaviour that was that was happening. And I mentioned just that I don't think that in a Liberal Party, mm. modern Liberal Party, where you've had a public association with neo-Nazis, which is obviously what happened in Victoria when they all turned up to Moira Deeming's chat. And hi, Moira, if you're listening. I also think that given the fact that the extremely qualified and also quite Jewish Julian Lisa has just been forced off the front bench mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. removed as the shadow attorney general. Well, I he, don't, he, he resigned. Oh, sorry, he resigned. Oh, resigned yes. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm sure he had heaps of choice in that. Yeah. In that kind of context that you are now making cabinet selections that please Pauline, I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, seriously, what are you doing? There's, like, repeated patterns of alignment. I'm not saying the Peter Dutton is anti-Semitic. I'm not saying the Liberal Party is anti-Semitic. You know, traditionally the Liberal Party has actually been quite supportive of Mm. the Jewish community. But I'm just like, repeatedly there are alignments here that are really unpleasant. And I cannot imagine you campaigning as a Liberal in a teal seat and going, well, we've made ourselves more like Pauline Hanson, so do you want to vote for us instead of Zali Stegall? <laughs> I can't, I, I am not getting the logic of where they think the gains are. Look, you know, it's interesting because there was one uh, Liberal MP uh, today who said Peter Dutton's very popular in Queensland. And look, that may be true. I don't have um, I don't have any hard data to say otherwise. Uh, what I can say is that Queensland is one state of the Commonwealth mm, of six and, and two territories, and that the LNP, which is the joint brand of the coalition in in Queensland, already has a majority of the federal seats in Queensland. In fact, has the vast majority already. There's not a lot of ground to be gained for Peter Dutton uh, in Queensland. So if the strategy is a Queensland... Double down on right-wing, the right-wing Queensland vote. I mean, maybe maybe he doesn't quite understand how the parliamentary system works. Maybe he thinks if he gets but he does. all of his MPs like, up to a 25% margin, they get some kind of bonus seat credit or something. This is the strange vortex that we're in. Like, he is not a stupid person. No, he's You not. do not get to be leader of a political party by being a stupid person. And, he was and def- I've made this point before. You know, we all go, oh, the other side, they're all stupid, they're all morons, whatever. Okay, that's rhetoric. The reality is it takes a long time and a lot of effort to get into a leadership yeah. position and dodos can't make the grade. He's not a dodo, but it's entirely possible that he is a wackadoodle zealot because that's, I mean, that's a different. Yeah, that's a different equation, right? It's a different equation. And I think that's probably, I think that's probably part of it. I think, I think there are people in the seat of Dixon who come up to Peter Dutton 
in you know when he does a street stall at, at the shopping center. I mean, this is what he talked about when he was at Alice Springs, right? Well, I'm talking to people in shopping centers. It's like that's great, but if you're the kind of person who goes up to Peter Dutton in a shopping center and says, "I'm really glad you're here," I'm really glad you're here, trying to silence the voices of Indigenous Australia. Well, I think that's great. They probably leave the last bit out because they're probably already voting for Peter Dutton. Do you think? They're probably already on board. You're not actually convincing them of anything. Do you have any policy curiosity about Peter Dutton? Here's the question. Because it's always interesting. I mean, obviously we have friends who are members of parliament at, and councillors at all kinds of different levels, mm. and we see them at markets and fairs and we'll be around when voters come up to yeah. them to talk about things. And there's a policy curiosity. What is Labor going to do about this? Yeah. What is council going to do about this? Do you have any plans? There is no policy curiosity about Peter Dunn. There is no point in asking him a question because he plays from such a narrow ideological playbook that there, he is not going to have – and a totally surprising response to any question. Well, we're looking into that. Well, we'll be considering many points of view. That's that's not a thing. No, it's not a thing. And quite frankly, the, the sort of chaos and disunity of the coalition since his announcement with Susan Lee Susan. about voting no and enforcing a no vote on the shadow cabinet has has been quite spectacular. I mean, after the Aston by-election, Peter Dutton said the number one priority that he had was keeping the party together. Since the Aston by-election, everything he's done has resulted in the Liberal Party being more disjointed. We've had reports that Liberal MPs came out of the party room believing they had supported one course of action and then watched Peter Dutton announce a different course of action and to wind back their own uh, social media posts about The Voice. Uh, we've seen, obviously, Julian Lisa. Uh, resigned from the front bench. We've seen pressure building on Simon Birmingham, uh, who's the leader of the Moderates faction, to resign from the front bench. Who says he's not going to? He's just not going to campaign. Thanks for your bravery there, Simon. Uh, the, and then you've seen uh, Karen Andrews, who was only re-elected eleven months ago, who has two thirds of her term of office still to serve. Go, I'm not going to stand again. I've decided already I'm not going to stand again. And by the way, uh, you can take me off the front bench now. That is a really unusual set of circumstances. Certainly doesn't scream keeping the party together. And then to a point, Jacinta Price, who, by the way, caucuses in the Nationals party room, not the Liberals party room, and give the Nationals an extra member of cabinet. And can't get through an interview with David Spears. I mean, I think that's also an important detail about Jacinta Price. Well, absolutely. I mean, anyone who watched that absolute train wreck on Insiders, obviously I didn't do a weekend rap because it was my birthday, but I have caught the, the interview. And, you know, fundamentally, he is not keeping the Liberal Party together. He he is absolutely undermining the concept of the Menzian uh the party of Menzies, and and his numbers are appalling. Oh, but his political purity. I mean, this is the thing. This is where all political parties get into trouble. If you want to be a party of government, you cannot pursue like a party purity test. That's yeah. not how it works. You actually need a broad coalition in order to win a broad coalition of voters. And, yes, that is a broad left coalition or a broad right coalition with lots of diversity in it. But as Uncle Carl, and that's Marx, used to say, you know, the the when he talks about you know, like dialectical reasoning, mm. you have a thesis, you have an antithesis, and then you reach a synthesis. You actually need diverse points of view to encounter ideas, to analyze them, to test them. The the opposition to the ideas is important because there's an answer that lies beyond the positions. Like this is the entire mm. framework of decision making in Marxism. And the idea that like and purity tests that take the dissent out of the room are dangerous. They lead to poor decision making. And the more moderates who lose the seats, the more moderates who get pushed off the front bench, the more moderates who get kicked out of the party room, the more trouble Peter Dutton is in. Because at least the moderates, I mean, not everybody hates them. Yeah. And look I mean, we've all lost a lot of respect for most of them, but we don't Hate them, and it's certainly it's an interesting time for this to be happening too, because Labor's obviously coming up to its first proper full budget. Uh, we're now less than three weeks away from the budget. 
There's lots of discussion about what will be in, what will be out, uh, the difficulties, the pressures in the budget, you know, the difficult global financial circumstances. You talked on the drum uh, about full employment being something Labor should commit to. Yeah, Labor should commit to full employment you know, policy. There's, there's actually, full employment is the greatest policy Labor has ever had. There's, you know, and we'll talk about Bill Shorten's press club address rebooting the NDIS. Uh, there's a need for uh, greater resources for our public schools. Uh, there's talk about what we do about higher education in this country and its over-reliance on international full fee-paying students and wage theft practices. Like there's a lot of really important political policy discussions that need to be had. Do you believe the Labor, the Liberal Party is engaged in a process of nation building? No. I mean, and I think I think that's actually part of it. You know, we can talk about oh well his his this his position on the no on on being anti-voice uh and his general uh demeanor while in our springs is why this has happened. But people People make these decisions based on a whole range of complex factors, and some of them are emotive, and some of them are around um, sim- symbols that give indications of, about that person's capability, and then you start to believe it, right? And all of these things are starting to add up around Peter Dutton. And when people remember Peter Dutton as defence minister and home affairs minister and the guy who wanted to put... Uh, people in militarised uniforms checking people's papers on the streets of Melbourne and the guy who talked about African gangs and now he's talking about these things in Alice Springs and now he's talking about the voice and saying that he doesn't want it and he's got this confused position and it becomes... Taking cabinet selection advice from Pauline Hanson! It becomes quite difficult to, to believe that the man who leads a group of people who've become collectively known as the Noalition is going to actively engage in nation building. And if you, you form that view, then quite frankly, you go, well, let's see what Labor has to say. And hopefully they've gone through a rigorous internal process because quite frankly, we already know what Dutton's going to say. He's going to say no. And so increasingly people tune out. And they'll go. Well, we know he's going to say no. We're going to. We know he's going to disagree. No policy curiosity. No policy curiosity. Yeah, I'm just. I'm finding it. I'm genuinely finding it confounding. I'm. I'm wondering if it's because he was kept off the election campaign in Victoria. Yeah. For the Liberals, he was kept off the election campaign in New South Wales, and I don't think he's wandered further than Queensland or a shopping centre in Alice Springs. Like I think. He's actually hiding from the Australian people, which is why he doesn't understand that what he's offering is unelectable. It's really curious, like especially when you look at, you know, you look at someone like David Pocock, okay, like David Pocock is finely tuned to the electorate that voted for him. Yeah. You know, and he convinced a lot of former Liberal voters, people who once voted for Zed Sezelja, who was like a crazy right-wing loon in the Liberal Party in the ACT, switched their vote to David Pocock. And he's close to what that vote is and where it came from. And he's got quite a gap to straddle. Like, you know, there were traditional Conservatives who voted for him. Yeah, absolutely they were. And yet rather than looking at Pocock. People who voted Greens who voted for him as well. Lots of people who voted Greens who voted for David Pocock. Yeah. You know, and independent voters who voted for Pocock. And obviously moderate Liberals voted for Pocock as well. Like it's it's quite the coalition that he had to put together, especially in- that in that Senate seat in Canberra, because they only have two sen they only elect yeah. two senators. And it's a three-year term, not a six-year term. It's really yeah, it's a demanding and that's the sort of space to have any hope of being Prime Minister. I I will say this now on record, Pocock has a better chance of being <laughs> Prime Minister of this country than Peter Dutton. And he's in the Senate. And yes, I do know how the <laughs> yeah, you know, that's Prime right. Ministership. Don't work. write us letters. We, we, we know, do know we know how that's this is. That's part works. of the joke. That's part yeah. of the joke. Look, I want to run through what some What you of should these. do is you should write a tweet implying that I don't know something about something that I've written an article about for an international publication. That's literally always my favourite. <laughs> Somebody might want to explain to Vanessa Batham how the Prime Ministership works. It's like, what, in that 
textbook that they're quoting my article in, sure. <laughs> Look, I want to run through some just quick numbers before we move on because these are, I think from my perspective, these are the most damning, right? So fundamentally, traditionally, it's been uh, labour wins on the issues of health, education, wages, workers' rights. Jobs. Jobs, right? But economic management, uh, cost of living, things that are, when it's framed in that way, the The, the economy. The economy. The, the economy, wins. this strange distant thing. This, this recent survey, right, has, made, has said that 36% say labour is best place to manage the economy. Uh, only 30% said the coalition doesn't. A six-point gap. That is quite a big gap between Labor and the coalition on managing the economy. Given the fact it determines voting behaviour, mm, I wonder why any other news is at 42% of the primary vote. Jobs and wages, 46% said Labor and Albanese. Less than half that number, 22%, said the coalition and Dutton. And on keeping the cost of living low, Labor and Albanese has a 10-point lead, 31 to 21%. Obviously, a lot of people go, I don't know. It's early in the election cycle and so on. But when you're looking at these sorts of numbers, when you're looking at these sorts of numbers and you go, well, for Dutton to get close, he'd have to get every single person who is undecided to break his way. It's, it's I mean, I guess it's theoretically possible but it's highly improbable that, that that's going to happen over the course of the next 18 months. And the result of the Liberal Party purity test is that there are no mechanisms to unseat him from the leadership. That's right, because because now not only has he got the, the support of all the Queensland LNP people, he's also obviously just got Jacinta Price, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if Jacinta Price starts caucusing in both party rooms. It's it quite- is weird because oh, they don't use the word caucus, do they? They have a party room. They have a party room. Yeah, party on wine. But um, but yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like the the rival, fa- the internal factions that theoretically should be able to put a break on his power have effectively ceased to exist. They're so tiny. I mean, there was that mm. amazing David Crow article where he listed what internal factions the Liberal Party parliamentary Liberal Caucus were in, and his faction has then they're like more in his faction than all the other factions combined. Yeah, and look, there are probably more people. Uh, or, or it's very close. I don't quite remember off the top of my head. I think we have more people at my birthday barbecue than Simon Birmingham has in the Moderates. So you know that's a bit uh, a bit disturbing for him, I'm sure. Though it was a lovely barbecue, though. <laughs> it was. A Thanks lovely for barbecue. coming, gang. But, yeah, no, I, I'm i just trying to – the only I, – I keep thinking of those quotes that he gave in that infamous press conference where he was like, by the way, ha, 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 stab the voice, stab, stab. And he talked about how I'm the kind of person who pushes through. Yeah. And that was the line, yeah. you know, like I, I, I'm just going to, you know, I'm a fighter and – I, you know, I'm just going to push through. And it's like that's literally not how democracy works. That's right. But do you think just by nailing yourself to these positions that you'll prevail? And, of course, the commentary has said that what he thinks he can do and what he thinks he has the support to do, because I'm fairly sure these guys only watch Sky, Yeah, that they will be able to build this electorate of a, a mass of no voters. And it's like the polls are not saying that. No. And Rowan Dean, I don't know if you've seen this yet, who's essentially given a speech on Sky suggesting that a yes vote to the voice will, you know, curdle the milk yeah, yield yeah, and yeah. cause your children to be born with calls. Like it is is genuinely whack stuff that that it, that he thinks that the, there's an invisible electorate of people who will buy that and it's just not real it's just not a real thing and i think you know we need to talk about some real issues because peter dutton because we're materialists and we it's are. cute we are materialists and, and it is cute and and oh. when we say materialists the dog thinks it's cute i don't mean we buy prada clothes I we're mean, not materialistic we talk about the material realities that people uh face and and one of the key things one of the big nation building pieces of material uh that labor created of course was the ndis and as we approach the 10th anniversary of its creation 
Bill Shorten gave a press club speech yesterday uh, where he talked about rebooting the NDIS. I mean, after a decade of mismanagement, and it's really interesting to see, um, you know, I've done a little bit of work in this space, as you know, Van, and really interesting to see the difference in approach. Uh, And Bill made this point during the questions uh, after his speech that really the the Morrison government uh, and the coalition treated the NDIS as a place to send disgraced or incapable ministers. And you had this, this litany of ministers who were disengaged, barely there, away on leave. Really great party fundraisers, though. Yeah, like just... If you've ever wondered why people that incompetent seem to get so much power, that's usually the reason. Hot tip. And you compare that to, to Bill Shorten, who literally said that it is the most important thing. He, he actually said um, the 2019 election loss was obviously very difficult to take, but being able to step back uh, and think about it in the context of now being able to go to the NDIS, something that he was part of creating create, and give it the reboot and put it on the right track is the most important work that he will ever do. And I think that's um, incredibly powerful stuff when you've got a minister that committed to it. I mean, there are problems in the NDIS. He's not, he's not suggesting otherwise. And I think that's, again, a big difference between the Labor and the Liberal approach. I mean, putting aside the fact that for the first time you've got a minister in the NDIS who's actually talking to the union movement, who's talking to the, Actual workers in the actual sector. To the Health Services Union, who's talking to the Australian Services Union, who's talking to the United Workers Union, talking to the Australian Workers Union. You know, and if you're not a member of your union, by the way... Whether, you really should join one, I reckon. Whether you're... Working in the NDIS, aged care, childcare, on an oil rig, as a teacher, you know, as a scientist. In IT. And Bill actually mentioned that in his speech. Yeah. That, you know, a lot of the problems with Robinet may not have happened if IT people were active members of unions and had representations that they could make to government about what was going on. And there are absolutely unions for you you can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow that's w-o-w whatever you do if you've got someone who tells you what to do whether they tell you 50 times a day once a day or once a week you need to be a part of your union because you will get better wages better conditions and quite frankly have a safer work environment so bill talked about that he he also talked about the fact that there needs to be more staff, right? There needs to be more support for the agency that delivers the NDIS. Uh, he talked about having a review. There's a review that's happening and will be uh, delivered in October. He mentioned the issues with the gig economy and that in that there are there are some shonky sham contracting providers in the NDIS. This is a multi-billion dollar taxpayer-funded uh, program and yes, it's helping a lot of people. And yes, the economic benefit for our country and the social benefit for our country is immense. But it doesn't mean, as he, as Bill said, that people in the NDIS are human ATMs for shonky providers to come along and take advantage of the taxpayer and of the participants. That's really the point that he was trying to make there, I think, and that there needs to be accreditation for the workers in the in the space. I mean Van it was a really um it was a really positive speech overall. Um it was really balanced. He's across it. He really is. He's across it. Like this is this is the the thing well, about I, Bill Shorten. Can I can I can I ask you this question? Do you know who the shadow minister for the NDIS is? No. Because I reckon most people would not know who it is. Is it Anne Rustin? No, it is not. It, well, unless it's changed, it may have changed today in the in the reshuffle. Is it Wackadoodle McSpork? Yes, Michael Sucker. Exactly right. No, <laughs> no, Michael Sucker. No, no. <laughs> Even Germ is outraged. Oh my god, no. Well, that was certainly that sector has very vulnerable people in it. No. <laughs> yes, indeed. So. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't expecting that reaction. <laughs> oh, man. 
again. But yes, Michael oh, Stocker, no. after the election, was shadow minister for the NDIS. That, you know, I, I have to admit, I haven't researched that today, given there's been a reshuffle. If only we had computers in our pockets it that we could well ask changed. any question. But if you compare if you compare Michael Sucker to Bill Shorten and and the, the yeah, you level can't, though, really, of the, can the work you? rate, the level of engagement it's with like the It's like when you compare Millie Vanilli to Aretha Franklin, like. <laughs> Millie Vanilli to Aretha Franklin. I mean, it's really, and again, you know, more good than bad, right? Like that's his whole point is that. It, the NDIS is neither all good nor all bad. Holy God, it really is Michael Sucker. Is Succo. it still Michael Sucker? There you go. So it's so important, right? It's such an important and integral part of our, as Bill said, our social democracy. It was good to see a Labor minister stand in front of the press club and call Australia a social democracy, by the way. I was very pleased with that. Um, but, Van, I love it when politicians talk about democracy and mean it. It makes me feel like things will be okay. And you've got to, again, compare this to Dutton's position where he basically, well, he literally said if if we need to uh, cut the NDIS to fund AUKUS, then the Liberal Party is open to having that discussion. Nobody put that on the table. That was nobody's suggestion. Peter Dutton just decided that he would offer up the NDIS as a means of funding nuclear submarines. The people have spoken in the Aston by-election <laughs> and I have decided to ignore all of it. It's just phenomenal. I mean, Not how democracy is supposed to work. And Bill was asked that question. I mean, I watched, obviously, the whole press co- conference, including the questions, uh, and he said, I've been put under no pressure by Chalmers or anyone <laughs> in the government to cut the NDIS in order to subsidise other programs. That's not how we work. That's not the Labor way. Like, I, I just, I, I mean, what? who advises Peter Dutton, look, what, you know, what you should do is put Labor in a bind here by suggesting they cut the NDIS to fund the submarine. Yeah, here's the thing. Wedge politics only work if you can wedge people who, who otherwise share values. It's, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Like you're not going to posi- – you're not in government anymore. Is this part of it that they think they're still in government? Could be. And are trying to force the opposition who are now the government. It, I mean it's just like, oh, yeah, we'll get Labor. They're going to have to tell us whether they're on, on board with uh, defence or disability spending. Ha, 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 ha. It's just like, yeah, no. That's that choice is in front of literally no one. That's right. Nobody, you know, no one is going to change their party alignment based on that. The only people, the literally only people who would vote for this submarine deal, the AUKUS expense, um, if the condition was cutting the NDIS, are already voting. They're, they're in the 26 people <laughs> who are already voting for Peter Dunn. Yeah, that's right. I'm just, where is this ele- Where is this mysterious electorate that is suddenly going to show up for you? And it's even funny because it's Cos Samaras and Tony Barry, who is a former Liberal Party strategist, mm. has made the point that the electorate is only getting more progressive. It's different kinds of progressive. Yeah. You know, there are laborists and there are like liberal centrists and but there are no, there's no growing conservative electorate. When the old conservatives die, there is not a rising generation of, you know Caleb Bonds out there. Caleb Bonds. If you think young people are like Caleb Bond, if you think young people read Caleb Bond. Or even know who he is. Yeah. Let, let's be fair. He had a fairly different social experience to his peers, I think is the only way I can possibly discuss Caleb Bond. Well, you know, I, I did not lay a hand on him when he was underage. I refused to criticise people under the age of 18. They are children. They are working things out. And, you know, he's older than that now and I still can't bring myself to criticise him because, to me, it feels like kicking a kitten. Yeah, look, a, a particularly right wing and un, un, uh, unpleasant kitten. Yeah, right yeah. wing kitten. Yeah, the kind of kitten that scratches you from under the bed. I am asking everyone to put right wing kitten into <laughs> mid journey or neocon kitten. But they're uh, not even neocons. That's the thing. They've lost the no. neo bit from the cons. They're just cons. Yeah. They're con cons. Yeah, yeah. My, look, uh, maybe Peter Dutton. <sighs> thinks that the party will be easier to keep together. His number one aim, remember. If he purges everybody he doesn't like. Yeah, I he, mean, that's an excellent path to unity. But 
if there's only if there's only twelve of them left, I mean that's a pretty yeah, even Peter Dutton could probably keep that group together. Mm. Maybe. Factional splits start at three people. Don't we know that for a fact? Well, maybe you just pizza party. I don't know. I pizza mean pizza party. I want to also just point out uh, I mean they have a party room. Yeah. Why have a party room when you can have a pizza party room? I know. Um, one pizza between the three of you. <laughs> Look, I think the Party Bill, of Menzies. I think Bill Shorten's uh speech at the press club is worth listening to. It's worth looking at the questions. I think he dealt with I think he's dealing with what is a difficult policy area very, very well. Um and quite frankly, when you consider that his opponent is Michael Suka, you know, in that circumstance, some ministers no! some ministers might take their foot off the gas. Some ministers might go, oh well, if the only person I've got to beat is Michael Suka, who quite frankly doesn't seem to have gotten out of Box Hill in the last six months. Uh, I'm pretty sad. Michael Sucker, the shame of Box Hill. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty sad state of affairs. Um, look, then there's there's some other things we need to talk about as well. Um, How cute our dog is because he's being pretty cute right now, people. I'm going to tell you. And look, you know, the the segue I'll use here is that that Bill knew um, Bill knew Father Bob. Uh, from way back in 1983, the year I was born was the year that Bill met Father Bob uh, on a uh, on a on a some kind of work experience thing, I think, from what I can read. Um, but it was they've known each other a long time. Bob obviously uh, was involved in the 2016 and 2019 elections uh, and the work that Bob was doing uh, in. In terms of social justice, very much aligned uh, with Bill's leadership of the party, but also his ongoing role as uh, NDIS minister. And and Bob was someone you and I both knew. I had the great great honour, really, of leading um, Southport Uniting Care uh, many years ago, um, uh, advocating to uh, in- increase the rate of New Start back in the day. Uh, when it was $30 a day, less than $30 a day, uh, and working with Bob on emergency relief programs to, to help low-income families. And, you know, one of my, and I'll, I'll get you to reflect on, on Bob in a minute too, but one of my great uh, Bob moments was we decided we would restart the Christmas Day dinner uh, in South Melbourne uh, Christmas Day lunch. We've been moribund for a few years. Uh, we had more than 300 families in the old South Melbourne town hall there. And of course, uh, Bob had been part of those discussions and it was a whole community event. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd had most of the food. We'd had Santa arrive, um, which, you know, if there are any children listening, turn off now. But it was just me in a suit in a forty degree heat, so uh, it was all so, sort of starting to wrap up. And Bob, who'd been out uh, visiting uh, people who couldn't get to the venue, who could, who were housebound or were in the social housing towers, turns up with a in a car with a boot full of clothes in bags and toys. And three full legs of ham, um, you know, ready to cut up, uh, ready to walk through the front door, and I, and, and I had to say, and bless him, he always called me doctor, and I don't really know why, but he, he said, doctor, I'm here, and I've bought the hams, <laughs> and I said, that's great, Bob, we've already fed everybody, um, uh, and if we walk through the front door with three uncut legs of ham, I'm not sure we'll make it all the way to the kitchen. Maybe we'll go around the side and cut them up and give out give out food parcel. Good idea, Doctor. Come on then. And off he went, sprightly as can be. Um, he spent all day, as I say, um, working with the community. And, and even at that point in the day, he was still just such a joy to be around. His energy and his enthusiasm, his love for the community was just so... Infectious. There's really no other way of describing it for me. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> he will be deeply missed. And I was very um, honoured 
and privileged to have got to do some work with him and then honoured and privileged that he had agreed to be celebrant at our wedding before the pandemic and, and obviously that uh, put, a, put a change on things. But, Van, you've written a wonderful piece about him that's coming out in The Guardian uh, shortly, if it isn't already out, depending on what time you're listening to this podcast, uh, because he really touched you as well, didn't he? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I first encountered Father Bob through John Safran, and I think a lot of other people did. If you weren't from Melbourne and those activist communities, I had friends who sent me uh, DVD copies of John Safran's documentaries, the one that Father Bob appeared in, and I was like, what a character. And then, of course, they had the ra- when I came back to Australia and I had the radio show, and I have a very complex relationship with microcephalism as well as you probably know better than most people that I was raised in a Catholic family that um, stayed with the Labor Party, that was a Labor Catholic family that stayed with the Labor Party, that chose the Labor Party over the Catholic Church during the split, um, that they were great, my family great adherents of Vatican II, they were from a liberation theology tradition which is very close alignment between Catholicism and socialism and looking at the social justice mission of the Catholic Church. Um, And obviously those values were imparted to me and I drifted from the church because I was a young, rational, evidence-based appreciation of the universe person. But as I got older and had obviously gone through all kinds of experiences, I realised you can believe in the fundamental material reality of the universe and God at the same time. And the language I used to explain that to myself was the Catholicism I had been raised in, a a robust, committed, selfless, social justice Catholicism. And, of course, Bob really represented that. Like I described it in my Guardian piece, it's like battler Catholicism, Mm. you know, a larrikin radical faith. And his solidarity with the trade union movement and his commitment to asylum seekers. And I ended up doing lots of events with Bob. I did anti-poverty week events with the unions with Bob and um, spoke at demos alongside him, saw him at things and we were both involved. CUB 55. CUB 55 and we um, also uh, lent our names and social media profiles to Fair Share, which is where they collect food and distribute food parcels and uh, like all of these things. And he just was the representative of the Catholicism that it was important to me. You know, in the way that George Pell certainly wasn't, mm. and George Pell's fans in politics and the media, like Tony Abbott, who's not a Catholic in any way that I recognise, and neither mm. is Jared Henderson, and neither is Greg Sheridan, and certainly not Barnaby Joyce, any of those people. And you know, but Father Bob was, mm. and and he, and a Catholicism in the sense of Catholic meaning universal. Mm. You did not have to be a Catholic to be Bob's comrade. I think that's one of the things that sometimes. Particularly online, uh, I would see occasionally people get um, angry about Bob's uh, Bob's support of individuals who they themselves would not want to support, and some of the individuals who I myself wouldn't want to support. But Bob saw his role as to love everyone, to love the unlovable. He said that you don't have to like someone in order to love them. And I can't think of a more on-brand Jesus sentiment than that. It, it really is. And, and you know, it, 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 even, even when the Catholic Church did him over, and they did do him over, I mean, you know, as I say, I was, I was around uh, there at the time when, Bob was basically forced out of his parish and and replaced um, with a, a, a sect of Catholicism that didn't believe uh, in in the same kind of Catholicism as Bob and didn't orthopraxy. Yeah, and didn't and what didn't, what Bob represents and what people like Dorothy Day and Gutierrez and the tradition that I'm aligned to mm. is orthopraxic liberation theology. You know that. That is, you honor God by doing. It is your works that count, not getting the words right, not orthodox, yeah, repeating the yeah. right words in the right order, but but emulating the acts of Christ. And and Bob absolutely did that. And you know, 
chalk and cheese, I have to say, having met Bob and been fortunate enough to do some work with Bob to then meet the successor to him in that parish, uh, who I'm sure in other ways is a very good Catholic, uh, but was very clear that all... That, Gets the right words in the right order. Yeah, it was very clear that the, the social justice... Uh, and the the food parcels, the emergency relief, the community outreach, those programs were not things that they would uh, look to continue. Certainly not in the same way. And it was it was disappointing. It was disappointing not just for me as as someone who worked in that sector, but for many of the parishioners as well. And we had parishioners who who left the Catholic Church in that parish because of the way Bob was treated. But Bob didn't stop the work. I mean, that's the other thing no. too, right? Like, you know, people for I don't know that people forget, but I think it gets glossed over that, you know, at the end of his life, Bob was operating out of a shop front and, and himself really living on charity um, because he was giving everything to other people. And even when you and I went to visit him, because we wanted him to officiate at our wedding, you know, he was giving away food parcels. He was giving people support while, he, while you know, he and his um, his, his associate were kind of get, walking us through the, the process and how it would go. I mean, he knighted you with a with a lightsaber. It was a – Bob, Bob was an experience of community that for many people – who were often alone, often isolated, often had very little in their lives, uh, they always, always found in Bob uh, an experience of community. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to make you cry, darling. No, it's I, know right. it's, I know it's very emotional. I mean, I'm having a cultural crisis because I don't see, and I. this is what my article is about, I don't see anything I value in the dominant character of Australian Catholicism now. I see elite private schools. I see the cover-up of just of sexual abuse. I see, you know, institutional protection of institutions that represent bigotry, homophobia, and transphobia. And, I mean, that's there's nothing in that for yeah. me. And what does that mean about, I think, I mean, Bob had, and I've said this, Bob had a long and fulfilling life. He did yeah. incredible things. He was 88 years old. That is longer than most people live. But with his death, we're not just losing a man. We are losing a generational Catholicism that I'm struggling to identify anywhere else. And it's it's challenging. Yeah. It's challenging. Look, I, I, I've been, my heart has been warmed by the outpouring from uh, particularly those on the left of politics. The union movement has obviously put out strong statements because Bob was a staunch unionist. Staunch unionist. He understood solidarity. And, and, and really, and I, and I come back to this, he understood solidarity even when it meant aligning yourself with people and things that other people have abandoned. He was never one to signal virtue. He was always one to live it. And, and it just, I, I take that really, I, I, I really want us all to take that forward because, Van, you know, your practice of your faith is aligned to the way that Bob uh, practised the faith of Catholicism, and I'm not a Catholic, um, and, you know, as much as I love you and as much as I loved Bob, um, I'm not going to become a Catholic. Certainly not be- now. Just because that of That ship it. just sailed. But I think there are lessons in religions that we can take without having to, you know, literally kiss the ring of the archbishop, and I think Bob demonstrated that, that even after he was treated so shabbily, so shabbily by an institution to which he had literally devoted his entire life. Well, what he had done was actually devote his entire life to the core tenets and the values that that institution was supposed to represent and to serving his communities and using that institution to do that. And I think, if anything, we can all, we can all do that. We can all serve our community 
and we can all take the, take the positive values of solidarity, love and support for one another. And then we should talk about some good news because, you know, we opened the show with the good news about Peter Dutton. Uh, we've talked about there's going to be meaningful reform in the NDIS that is being led by a minister who actually cares about it. But there's also more good news from, of all places, the Labor government in the environment. And it's worth, you know, it's no wonder Bob lined up with so many Labor politicians over the years because fundamentally they're doing good things. And our good friends Chris Bowen and Catherine King have today. Is it a Bowen King special? It's a Bowen King special. <laughs> Bowen King, King Bowen. Don't tell Chris I said that. Uh, the Don't tell Catherine you said that. <laughs> yeah. But, no, it is. It is a special because what they've announced is an electric vehicle strategy. So Australia's finally going to have an electric vehicle strategy. And the aim is to cut emissions by at least 3 million tonnes of carbon by 2030 and more than 10 million tonnes by 2035. Now, people go, oh, is this going to be, we're going to have to pay for this. Oh, it's going to be expensive. Oh, Peter Dutton, Peter Dutton, Peter Dutton. (laughs) I am a banana. The reality of this is. Well, let's hear what Michael Sucker has to think. (laughs) No! The reality of this is, and and I'm going to give you a moment because you, you've got to find our contributors, don't forget, because... I just remembered that, Ben. I just reached for the phone <laughs> going, something I'm supposed to be doing as opposed to sitting here crying. I know, because... I'm sorry, everybody. It's just been an emotional day. It's been a full-on day. that You know, we always think, oh, Wednesday might be a slow news day, and then announcement after announcement, and then, you know, shocking news as well. But look... Passenger vehicles contribute 60% of Australia's transport emissions and more than 10% of our total emissions, which is quite a lot uh, when you consider that we also, you know, make aluminium, concrete and uh, steel and glass here, which are high emissions industries. But not only will this be a policy that reduces those emissions, it actually will save people on fuel costs. So. Study is suggesting $519 a year in fuel costs. And if, like me, you happen to glance at the price of petrol today, it was nearly it was $2 basically where I was today, uh, a litre, $2 a litre. Uh, you can imagine that those savings will only increase as the cost of renewable energy decreases and the cost of fossil fuels increase. But then this is fantastic news. Um, You know, Chris Bowen says that it's overdue for Australia. It's about putting in place fuel efficiency standards. I love fuel efficiency standards. I had no idea that new cars in Australia use 40% more fuel than in the European Union, 20% more than the United States. You know, we always think about the United States as gas guzzlers, right? Describe the look on my face. Yeah, you look shocked and appalled and stunned. Stunned like a mullet, isn't that what they say? Stunned mullet. Um, but we 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 are literally Chris Bowen said Australia and Russia are the only two developed countries without standards. <sighs> Russia, honestly. Russia. Yeah, and, do you know if Russia's doing it, it's bad. Thanks, Scott Morrison. Um, I feel like half the time we can just say thanks, Scott Morrison. But I mean, this this means that we will. Through the combination of things that are already in place around reducing the costs of electric vehicles, putting in more electric vehicle charges. I mean, you and I, we've talked about the electric vehicle highways. Um, uh, Catherine King, uh, the Minister for uh, uh, Regional Development, Infrastructure, Transport, uh, has said that 85% of all cars sold in the world are subject to fuel efficiency. It's time Australians were offered the same choice. Uh, and we're going to send a strong message to global car companies uh, that Australia will no longer settle for less. I mean, you know, for all of the coalition's chest beating about wanting to be proud about Australia, they seem more than happy to let car companies dump garbage here and charge us top dollar for it. You know, already the Labor government has cut taxes on electric vehicles, saving people up to $11,000 a year. 
this is this is a big announcement. The, the strategy will be reviewed. Obviously, uh, they're saying in 2026, I think is what they're saying. Uh, and look, again, it's one of those things where people go, well, why doesn't Labor do more? Why don't they make electric vehicles cheaper or ban combustion engine vehicles? But because actually the process of government is things like this. It's putting in place a variety of mechanisms that create an environment to allow change to occur in a way that people will accept and embed into the way we do things. So instead of lagging the rest of the world, electric vehicles make up 9% of car sales uh, around the world and less than 5% here in Australia, sorry, less than 4% here in Australia, we can start to catch up to the rest of the world and we can start to have electric vehicle battery manufacturing here, perhaps, Love given it. we have all of the uh, materials, have a domestic market for electric vehicles. We start to have all of the things in place to be more emissions uh, neutral. And wouldn't that be great? I think that's great news. Yeah, it's great news. Absolutely fantastic news. Now, then. This podcast, as traumatic as it often is for you and I to do, uh, we absolutely love our listeners, people who like, who who share, who comment, who the podcast is always going to be free to listen to, always free to download. That's our commitment to the people of this great country. We obviously are always going to encourage you to join your union. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Encourage you to get involved in your community, get involved in what's going on. And at the start of uh, 2022, we did start a supporter page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, uh, thinking that maybe we'd get a few dollars to help advertise and spread the word a bit further. Well, we now have a substantial list of contributors, people who give once off, who chip in a buck a week, who give us $10 a month. They're our extended reach supporters and our cadre who are contributing $20 a month. And their generous support of this podcast allows us to reach more and more people. We've smashed past 800,000 downloads. We're tracking well towards 850,000 downloads. We will get to over a million this year. There's no question in my mind now. And it's because of the support of people who make a contribution, whether it's a financial one or by sharing with their friends, family, colleagues, co-workers. However you can participate in this conversation, we really appreciate that, encourage you to do that. And we really want to congratulate you for making us part of your life and hopefully making us part of other people's lives too. But we do give a commitment to read out the names of our cadre and extend the reach supporters because they have gone that extra mile, put their hand in their back pocket and contributed 20 bucks or 10 bucks a month. Van, our cadre are... Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Balliat, Jan C. Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, at Annie Baldwin, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Giada, at Jagkani, Kristen Coltamara, James Bromman, Punch Dunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash, 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nerissa Simon at Katagal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, Matthew Hadley at Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, and Louise Watson slash Red, White, and Blue Lou. Our Extend the Reach supporters Stuart Munn, Blah Goyer, Matthew Case, Marky Mark at Vic Embiid, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Caradise 68, Frank Nahus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur Pauline Bate, Helen, Sanj Kelly, Dorena, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tradragon, Daniel Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, 
Anna Uren, Ross Kenner, 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jodie A. Nod on Twitter, Penelope, Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K. Not, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Reverse, Someone, W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hoden, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Annie Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe, Pasha, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Nassandy B, and Renee McGee. Congratulations to all of our contributors and you will be getting your email with this episode and additional links, including links to Van's latest articles uh, in your inbox. So if you want that, go to our Buy Me A Coffee page and become a contributor. Two quick shout outs I want to do, Van. One to Glenn Robbie, who is one of our supporters, an old childhood friend of mine who also turned 40 this weekend, uh, in the last week, I should say. Uh, and also to Liam Caulfield, who I've done some work with, who I learned today uh, was, possibly still is, the lead singer of a band called Stray Birds. So if you're looking for uh, some, quote, bit of rock, bit of balladry, lots of emotion, check out Stray Birds on Spotify. Uh, I've had a bit of a listen to them today. I quite enjoyed it. and. Uh, uh, Liam, if you're listening, uh, that's your free plug. Uh, hope you get a couple more listeners and people enjoy your music, mate. Van, I think that's the show for this week. I think it is. I need to eat some chicken and play Ghost of Tsushima now. Until Sunday when I do the weekend wrap. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.